Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. The message of that hymn is really what is highlighted in this passage. Ephesians chapter 3, if you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 815. We are coming to the end of the doctrinal section of Ephesians as we have been studying this book and viewing the church through spiritual eyes. And really, we're coming to the pinnacle of this book. When we were living in Maine, when I pastored there for almost 18 years, there were, there were certain in-state destinations that made it very difficult to go elsewhere on vacation. People came to Maine on vacation, and when we had some time, there were certain places that we just loved to visit. Uh, one of those was Cadillac Mountain on Mount Desert Island, Acadia National Park, uh, Bar Harbor area. It's one of those that was just an amazing view of vista from the top of there. But in the summer, it was awfully crowded because of the number of tourists that would come. It's, a, it's an exciting view because the, the mountain is 1,530 feet tall. It's the highest point within 25 miles of the Atlantic seaboard. So from Nova Scotia to Mexico, that is the highest peak within 25 mountains. And it's, it's said to be the first place that the, the sun rise can be seen in the U.S. And that is true for part of the year. It's not true all year long, but it is, it is a beautiful place. But as I mentioned, it'd be very crowded in the summer. And there was a place about two hours south of there and much closer to where we lived uh, that made for a very convenient day trip. It was Camden, Maine. This is a, a quaint seaside village. It has much charm and would have fewer tourists. And so it was a, a place that we could go on a, for a day and just really enjoy the time. And, and in this area, they also have a, they have a state park, Camden Hill State Park. And in that park is another mountain, not nearly as tall, but it's called Mount Batty. And from that, the views are amazing. Years ago, my kids and I hiked up to the summit. Uh, they have many trails, and so we took one of the hikes, and thankfully, my wife drove to the summit so that we didn't have to hike down, um, or at least I didn't have to. The kids can if they want. I'll pick them up at the bottom. Uh, but it was an interesting hike because most of it was through the forest. And you're, you're walking through tall trees, much vegetation. Once in a while, there'd be a break in the trees, and, and in the distance, you might be able to see just a glimpse of another mountain and more trees, and, and we really were on the, the side of the mountain. We couldn't even see the ocean. And so while it was an enjoyable hike, there wasn't much of a view. We couldn't see any of the harbor. And it wasn't until we got to the top and emerged from the woods, crested the, the hill, and, and then were able to take in the scene and to look down on the, the ocean, the trees, the islands, the harbor. And this, this is the view from, from Mount Batty. Last, last October, when I was preaching in Maine, Judy and I made the drive up to Camden. 
and the fall colors were just starting to turn. And I took this picture at that time. You might be able to see a little bit, uh, just a, a few of the, the specks of color, uh, but you can imagine what it was going to be. And having been there in the, the fall, but from here, the, it was just a gorgeous view of the harbor. And I, I never tired of this view because having been in that seaside town and looking down, I could spot different landmarks. The church with the, the New England steeple. The, I, I knew where certain places were, certain coffee shops, certain gift shops, the parking areas, and, and where the traffic jams would take place. On top of this mountain, there's a tower, a stone tower that was built, and if you climb to the top of that, there's a, there's a landing area, and you can look out over the entire bay, the ocean, and, and there's a, a chart that tells you what you're seeing. It, it, it shows you the islands with the names, including Mount Desert Island, several hours to the north. And it gives you that opportunity. And, and, and really, to stand here is to get in that panorama. As we come to the end of Ephesians chapter 3, it's like we've been hiking through the forest, admiring God's beauty of creation among the trees of redemption and reconciliation, and taking in His handiwork that, that people who were once dead are now made alive. And, and while some of the par parts of this trail have been more mentally strenuous and spiritually stretching, we're now coming to that vista. We're coming to the summit. And as we reach it, we're going to stand above the trees and see the panorama of God's amazing handiwork in our spiritual life and the display of His glory that is taking place in the church. And that's what I want us to consider this morning, that we are to be giving glory to God. This scene, this panoramic view, spiritually should never get old. If we are at a point where we say, well, I've read this before, I've seen it before, and it doesn't motivate us to glorify God, to praise His name, then something is, is dimming in our spiritual sight. Because in the same way, I never tire of standing on Mount Batty, even though I've been there many times. And, and taking in that view, the same thing should happen on even a higher level in our spiritual life when we see what God has done. And, and rather than saying, I see this before, this morning I want us to stand here and note the markers that we have seen. And when we do that, when we comprehend that, the majesty of God's plan in our salvation, it ought to move us to live in such a way that we will bring glory to His name. That we would do that personally, and then as a church that we would do it corporately. The third chapter of Ephesians is the culmination, and it culminates with this amazing proclamation of praise. As, as I've said, these verses are really the pinnacle of this book. We've, we've walked through the forest, we've come to the top, we're at, we're at the summit. After this, we'll be going down into the village where we live, where we do life, where we, where we have our shopping and our life relationships. And that's what's going to take place in, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. How to, how to get along with one another in the church. How to love your wife as Christ loved the church, as husbands. How, how to direct the hearts of our children. How to deal with spiritual battles. 
All of this is going to be coming out in chapters 4, 5, and 6, but it's flowing from an understanding of what God has done. These verses really are the pinnacle of, of this book. It's a, this amazing proclamation. I, I, preached on, I actually preached on these verses back in November, really in preparation for our study. But we hadn't done all the work to get to this point. And so as we come here this morning, we're going to look at it again. It's the same, the, the same hermeneutical study, but it's a different homiletical outline. I've got different points, but coming from the same passage that I trust will be helpful for us. And hopefully now we have a clearer understanding, a clearer vision spiritually of God's amazing work. The first half of this book is doctrinal. And we're concluding that. It's, it's telling us that God will receive glory in the church, in establishing the church, and what he's done to establish the church. The second half of the book will be practical, and it's the glory of God expressed through the church, through the, the truths in, in chapters 1 through 3 that are now being lived out in everyday life situations. The immediate context, though, of this section began back in verse 14. This is where Paul began praying. And, and he's praying for the Ephesian believers and, and the specifics of this prayer that are powerful petitions that he is bringing to the king. And we've considered this, and I want to I orient us so that we come to this doxology with the right spirit. Paul prayed for several things. The first thing he prayed for was that they would have an increased capacity for a dynamic spiritual life. That was verse 16 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That you would have that strength in the inner person. And so this was the first aspect. The second request was that Christ would be at home in their lives, in their hearts. And so it says in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And we talked about how the, the word dwell here is not speaking of Christ coming for salvation, that's already taken place, the idea here is that he would be at home, that he's not a guest, that he's allowed to paint the walls and rearrange the furniture, that, that he would be settled down in their heart. That's what verse 17 is saying. His third petition in this was that they would have an experiential comprehension of the love of Christ. And really picking up in verse 17 and going through the first part of verse 19, that they would be rooted and grounded in love and be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And we considered that last week. Trying to wrap our spiritual mind about, around that which is really incomprehensible. To know the, the width, how wide, how long, how deep, how high is his love for us. And though we will never fully grasp it, as we stretch, we will comprehend it better. And it's in an experiential way so that when the trials of life come, when we face the burdens, the, the battles, the health issues, the financial struggles, the, the, the marital struggles, maybe a wayward child say, Lord, do you really love? Yes. And we comprehend that, that God is working all things together for his glory and our good. And then the fourth aspect of this prayer is for that practical outworking of godly conduct. 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And since God is the standard, we are to strive to be perfect even as He is perfect. We are called to be holy as He is holy. And and we remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, we're told that God chose us before the world began that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. So understanding the experiential love of Christ, we will strive to be filled with the fullness of God that we would be growing in holiness. Now, we understand we will never attain such perfection in this world. But when we comprehend the magnitude of the love of Christ, we are motivated to be all that God wants us to be. That's what it's speaking of, to be filled with the fullness of God. That we never become complacent in our spiritual life. No, we don't want to be discouraged. We, we want to be growing, but there's that goal to always be taking the next spiritual step and admonishing ourselves and examining our lives to say, what is my next spiritual step? So against that backdrop, with these amazing prayer requests that Paul is praying for the the believers at Ephesus, Paul's prayer petition now turns to praise. And he proclaims the glory of God with an amazing proclamation, uh, what we refer to as a doxology. The Greek word for glory is the word doxa. And so doxology is that expression of praise, and in this case, a very brief hymn of praise. This two-verse doxology is not only the climax of the letter, the, the summit from which we view the spiritual geography of God's plan to display His glory in the church, it's also been said to probably be one of the greatest doxologies in the Bible. And that's why I've taken this time to orient us. So as we come to the top of this, that we'll be able to see and and understand from this vantage point that we're going to glorify God as we go down into the practical everyday living of chapters 4, 5, and 6. And some of the petitions, some of the, the commands, and really there are no commands in that first three chapters. There's one imperative to remember But there will be a lot of commands in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And at times we'll say, well, how can I do that? This doxology is what will give us that foundation. And when you comprehend the majesty of God's plan for your salvation, you will endeavor to live for His glory personally. And so that's what I want us to consider this morning. Follow with me as I begin reading in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look into your word, as we meditate upon this great doxology, we pray that that our hearts would be stirred to praise you properly and to trust you fully. Use your spirit to direct our lives for your glory. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. As I mentioned, this is possibly the greatest doxology in the Bible. It's the culmination of recognizing God's magnificent power that is in work in our lives as a church 
And it's the conclusion of this heartfelt adoration. That when we comprehend this, that God's plan for our salvation, then we will endeavor to live for His glory personally. So how will we do that? Well, you will glorify God when you, first of all, have a proper focus. And so we're finally getting to the notes in your bulletin. But that proper focus that comes, it says, now to Him. The word now is actually based on the content of the previous three chapters. This wasn't just a filler to to shift gears, but it's really the unfolding of the what has been expounded of God's amazing plan, his predestination, his power, his provision, he is to be praised. Now to him. Do you realize that Ephesians is the only New Testament epistle that talks about what God is doing in the universe by the church? That if we have spiritual eyes, we will see God's bigger plan, not just for this world, but the aspect of teaching principalities and powers in the heavenlies of God's manifold wisdom. And so it's now to Him. Who is the Him that is mentioned here? I mean, if we, as you've followed, as we've read some of the previous sections, there's a switch of pronouns very quickly, and sometimes it's, it's hard to keep track of, is this the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? Well, the Him here is very clearly God the Father. He's the one that's mentioned at the end of verse 19. The fullness of God. Now to Him. Also, back at the beginning of this prayer, back in verse 14, Paul spoke of bowing my knees to the Father. So Paul begins by coming with this heartfelt humility before God as he's bowing before Him, and he concludes with this this heart-stirring glory to the Father. And it's in keeping with the pattern we saw back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 18, that it is through the Son, we have access by the Spirit to the Father. And so it's really giving us the pattern for our praying, that we pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And this is how Paul is concluding. Now, what is the reason for this great doxology? Well, just to kind of bullet point what has taken place in the previous three chapters, what we see is that in chapter 1, God is glorified because He is the source of your redemption. And we took several weeks walking through chapter 1 to see this. But the doctrine of the church is grounded in the doctrine of salvation. We are a called-out assembly. The church, the ecclesia, called out, gathering. We are called out of this world. We are are saved for His glory as His possession to accomplish His purpose. In fact, if you you look back in in chapters 1 through 4, in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, it says the Father chose us before the world was created. God knew you and me before anybody else ever thought about us, before anyone existed. He looked down through time and saw us here today. He chose us. It says in verses 4 through 6 of the first chapter, He chose us. He adopted us as His children. He did this by His good pleasure, and He accepted us on the basis of His Son. We're accepted in the beloved. 
It has nothing to do with us. We're accepted because of his son. And why did he do this? Well, verse 6 tells us. He did all this to the praise of the glory of his grace. The glory is for him. We see that in in chapter 1, verse 6. Then we see in verse 12 that our redemption is through the blood of Christ by his riches so that we would also be to the praise of his glory. And we see that in verse 12. So our redemption is for his glory. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says that the Holy Spirit seals us. He guarantees our inheritance. Why? To the praise of his glory. So three times, the the ending, there's actually three stanzas of that praise, that proclamation of praise in the opening verses of this book. They conclude, each stanza concludes with to the praise of his glory. And what we see in these opening verses is that redemption was the Father's plan. It's by the Son's provision, and and our inheritance is protected by the Spirit. So we're selected by the Father, we're saved by the Son, and we're secured by the Spirit. And that's what we consider. And then in the second chapter, we see that God is glorified because He secures our reconciliation. Our salvation, our redemption is spoken of in chapter 1. In chapter 2, it speaks of reconciliation. It begins with God reaching down into the grave and taking dead people from every people group in the world and making them living stones in the building that he is constructing where he will dwell. He's taking people who are living according to their fleshly desires, their lusts, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And he takes those people, trespassers, dead in sin, makes them alive and makes them the bride for his son. That is amazing. I mean, as I mentioned last week, it would be one thing to just dwell in a corner of heaven. Put, Put me in heaven's attic. That would be great. We are accepted in the beloved, seated with his son and the bride of Christ. He takes former foes and makes them family. Jews who were diligent in keeping the law on one side and Gentiles, and the Gentiles in Ephesus were pagans, idol worshipers, immoral people, and he brings them together in one family in the church. It's a new creation. Only God could do that. Only God would think of that. And he demonstrates his love by saving us and reconciling us to himself. And in so doing, he displays his wisdom. And so how does this take place? Well, it's not by works. Lest anyone would boast. Because if we boast, who gets the glory? We do. Look what I did. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. It's not of works because otherwise we get the glory. And the whole focus of this is all the glory goes to God. And then in chapter 3, we see that God is glorified as he unfolds his revelation. And this is what we saw in that third aspect, that, that Paul is stumbling over himself. Because he gets to reveal, he gets to share the glory of what God is doing. This this new creation or new humanity of bringing Jews and Gentiles together in this mystery of the church. 
And so in chapter 3, Paul is saying, I, I, get to, I get to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I am the person that was less than the least of all saints, the chief of sinners, and I am the one that gets to proclaim this. And so the third point there, if you can switch the slide to the third one, that God is glorified because he unfolds his revelation. Paul is almost like this little kid who, who has the secret. And, and he gets to tell everybody, but it's not because of immaturity. It's just because he's so excited at the amazement of what God has done. And the multifaceted wisdom, that's verse 10 of chapter 3. And so this is the basis of the exaltation. This information ought to motivate adoration. He's not just giving us theological truths. There's a lot of discussion that goes on in, the, in theology about what's in chapters 1 through 3. But if we end up gnawing on theological bones and we don't praise the, the Father, then we've missed the point. Because Paul is not giving information so that we can have a really heated discussion in the classroom. He's giving information that ought to lead to adoration which culminates in glorification. Unto him be glory. The truth presented here is concerning who God is, what he has done, and the express purposes for his glory. So proper theology results in wholehearted doxology. And when we have the proper focus on God, such knowledge ought to stretch us. Such as the psalmist said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain unto it. It's high. But you know what? God is glorified. Not only when you have the right focus, but then secondly, when you have an increased faith. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage. He who is able to do. So the perspective now is on God's power. You know, our, our prayers are limited. God's power is not. We sang, you are coming to a king. So what should I bring? Bring big petitions. Large petitions with you bring for his grace and power as such. None of us can ever ask too much. You know, we don't, we don't get that impression with people. You know, shortly after I, I became the president of International Baptist College and Seminary, Dr. Tetro took me with, with him to, to visit a potential donor. He wanted them to meet the new president, and he was wanting me to learn how he did fundraising. And I still remember this sitting in the room and the conversation is going different directions and I'm just kind of absorbing this. And Dr. T is sharing some of the future plans we have for the college and some of our needs. And he mentioned that one of those projects would cost us about $25,000. And then he just said it nonchalantly, so maybe you could write us a check for that. And they were equally as unruffled as they responded, yeah, well, well, we'll think about that. And it was like he'd asked for a glass of water. And I'm sitting there, act like you do this all the time. It's like, act like, yeah, this is just normal conversation. Even though it's not. And I thought, what an, you know, as I thought about that, he knew their heart for the ministry he knew some of their financial wherewithal. And he knew that that wasn't that big an ask. Now, I could ask you that, and, and some of you might be able to say that, and some of you say, yeah, I'll, bounce, I'll write the check and we'll see how high it bounces. 
But when we bring our request to God, the request, the, the check will never bounce. None can ever ask too much. And that's what we see. And, and understanding, because people have limited resources, God does not. In fact, back in chapter 1, verse 7, again, it says, Our forgiveness is according to the riches of His grace. Oh, you don't know what I've done. No, but I know the riches of His grace to forgive. In, in chapter 2, verse 8, it says, He has saved us and seated us in heavenly places that He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness to us. So, so His rich kindness is being demonstrated to us. And now here in chapter 3, verse 16, the inner strength that we receive comes from the riches of His glory. So forgiveness, kindness, and strength all come from the riches of God. So what do we ask for? See, this is the proclamation of God's power. I, back in November, I, I kind of dropped us through this, but I want us to see it again because I, I'm afraid that sometimes we, we, we lose the sight of this vista. Notice what it says, Now to him who is able, he is able to do, you know, God is able to do the request that we bring to Him. That's the first thing that we see, that He is able. The second one, go ahead and put the first one up. Is that on the slide? It's, it's, it's tied up. So the first one is He is able. Our system, it's a heavy, uh, uh, there's, this is a large file. I gave it to him on a flash drive this morning. He's able to do. The second thing, though, that we see is he is able to do what we ask. You know, wouldn't it be nice if God could answer our prayers? You could ask him anything and he will answer it. He will answer according to his will. Now, sometimes we have not because we don't ask. We ask not. And sometimes we ask but we don't receive because we have selfish ambitions. And so that, that's the problem. The third thing that he's able to do all that we ask. Not only does he do what we ask, he's able to do all that we ask. And then the fourth one, he's able to do all that we ask or imagine. We think. You know, have you ever prayed and thought, you know, well, this is what I'm asking, but it sure would be nice if God would do this. He can do more than you can even imagine. And I don't know about you, but I have a fairly decent imagination. Now in him to, is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. So large petitions with you bring. In fact, the fifth thing we see is he's able to do beyond all that we ask or imagine. You know, there are, there are times in life that God works things out and it's like, I couldn't have even imagined that and it's way beyond what we wanted. That ought to bring us to Praise, doxology. And the sixth thing is he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or imagine. So it's abundantly beyond. And then seventh, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can ask or imagine. It's almost like Paul is just trying to pile up the, the description of this. God can do what you ask. He can do all that you ask. He can do all that you ask or think. He can do beyond what you can ask or think. He can do abundantly beyond. He can do exceeding abundantly beyond what you can ask or think. And if that doesn't bring us to glory, 
to come with those large petitions. Say, okay, well, wait a minute. Maybe Paul's comfortable asking for extravagant blessings, but isn't this really too much? No. What we sang, the words were written by John Newton. We know him better for amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And if you know his story and just the horrible life that he had led, the sin and degradation and and the depths that he reached, and to say, that saved a wretch like me. And he also penned these words. Come, my soul, with every care. Jesus loves to answer prayer. You're coming to a king. What can he do? He can do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can ask or even imagine. Say, I don't, I don't know that I fully understand that. Neither do I. But you know what? When we stretch ourselves to understand it, we're glorifying God. See, God is glorified when you stretch to understand His mercy and grace. God is glorified when you meditate upon these truths and spend time in prayer. So do you esteem that personal time with the Lord? Do, do, you, do you say that, you know, say, okay, Paul's comfortable with that. I'm not as comfortable. So what are you doing to get more comfortable? What are you going to do tomorrow morning when you enter the, the living room of your meditation and fellowship time with the Lord and commune with God? Or do you say, I just don't understand it and, and write it off? God's not glorified if we just push it aside. He is glorified when we say, I don't quite get it, but I want to. I want to get the heights, the depths, the length, the breadth, to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. And that brings honor and glory to Christ. And God answers prayers according to His will. He's glorified when we stretch to know His will and when we surrender to do His will. The third thing that we see, though, in this passage is is that God is glorified when you have a persistent fidelity. When we're growing both in faith and faithfulness. The power that is at work in you. It's not just power out there. It's power in here. And and there's a number of Greek words that are used to to demonstrate, to relate, to get this idea of power across. We've we've considered some of them already here in Ephesians. And in this passage, Paul's actually bringing several of them together. He's bringing them together and saying that God has the, the dunamis, the dynamic ability to provide the dynamic power that is at work energizing us. To, to obey. So my question is, are there areas where you have been defeated so long in your life you, you don't think you can ever change? Well, you can't in your power. But His power is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond what we can ask or even imagine. Give Him that secret closet of your sin and, and allow Him to work because the power that is at work in us, chapter 1 tells us, is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Chapter 2 tells us it's the power that raised us from the dead when we were dead in trespasses and sin. So if he can raise the dead, he can defeat the sin. We need to take the steps that he would have. But are you allowing the fullness of God to fill you? Are the fruit of the Spirit displayed in you? Are you seeking to be all that God wants you to be? That's the fullness of God. 
And the fourth thing that we see is that God is glorified when you have a spiritual family. To Him be glory in the church. The glory in the church, we, we glorify as we serve as part of a spiritual family of sinners brought together from various backgrounds and, and honoring Him. That person gets the glory in the arena of their accomplishments. So musicians get glory in the concert hall or on the stage, athletes on the field or in the stadium, scholars in the, in the halls of academia. Where does God get the glory? In the church. Why? What has he done? He's taken people who were dead, defiled, defiant, disobedient, deserving of doom, and, and with everybody else like that, and made them accepted in the Beloved raised us up. That's what God has done. And so understanding this is what he's done, and so we're members of one body, a spiritual building, the bride of Christ, and, and that the church is the place where angelic beings are being instructed in the amazing wisdom of God. That's chapter 3, verse 10. So how is this glory then displayed? Well, God is glorified when we manifest the characteristics of his goodness in our daily life. When we are filled with the fullness of God and then we're proclaiming that, we're working on the unity and we're sharing the good news of others. That, that the church is, is really where we encourage one another. It's where we demonstrate forgiveness in a culture that is very good at holding grudges and displaying hostility. You don't have to be a spiritual person to be resentful, to walk around with a chip on your shoulder, to wallow in self-pity. We live in a culture that does that. Those are not the hallmarks of somebody who's been made alive. Those are the hallmarks of the dead and defiant and defiled. And so we're saved for good works that God prepared, he planned, he ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I want to be very clear, and I think we understand this, but we're not saved by our works. Our, our works are not pre-salvation, they're post-salvation. They're, they're characteristics, they're, they're evidences that we have been saved, but our works do not save us, otherwise we would boast. But what are the attributes of God's goodness? Well, we've seen in this letter, mercy, love, forgiveness. Are those visible in our lives? I mean, that's how we bring glory to him and evidence that we're filled with the fullness of God. Our, our motto here at Tri-City Baptist Church is ministers every member. And in doing so, we're manifesting the glory of God. It's not about us, it's about him. And, and we are gifted to serve the whole body as every one of us shares the part that God has supplied. That's what chapter 4, verse 16 is going to tell us. As we come off this mountaintop and get into the valley of where we live, it says that God is working in the church with every part that he supplies through the members. That's why I've said before that the church is not a franchise, it's a family. And you don't find two churches that are identical because you have different giftedness. In the same way, you don't find two families that are identical. Children have different strengths and weaknesses. You have different dispositions. And that combination brings the uniqueness. And the same thing happens in the church. And so we, we see that as we serve. And, and, and the desire, though, the focus of this is that our goal is to serve rather than be served. We're to contribute rather than consume. 
Why? Because it's not about us, it's about His glory. And we come together to serve for His glory. And God will be glorified when we have that spiritual family. And then finally, God will be glorified when we have a secure future. How, is, how long is this going to go on? To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's an interesting mix of words that's being brought together in that passage. The generations are periods of human life. You know, the next generation, we, we put labels on the generations. You know, baby boomers and X and Y and, and, and we just, those are periods of human existence. But then it goes to forever and ever. And the, the, literally, the Greek there is for ages and ages. These are periods of eternity when generations no longer exist. So when the generations end, it still continues. God will be glorified beginning in this age, continuing into eternity, from here to eternity, because of what He has done. Now, I lay all that out to say, do you realize that God has you here right at this time, has Tri-City Baptist Church here at this time, so that we would complete the good works that He prepared beforehand, before the world was created, that we should walk in them today. That's part of God's plan. That we're really, we are His workmanship, chapter 2, verse 10. His masterpieces, chosen before He created the world to proclaim His goodness. So are you really living for the eternal glory of God? Is that your goal today? Are you living for the eternal glory that, that God would receive the glory? Maybe another way to ask that question is, are you fulfilling your calling? You know, sometimes we often focus on our occupation, our job. Well, your job is what you get paid to do. Your calling is what you were made to do. God made you with a calling to fulfill His purpose. So let's not just focus on what we do. Let's consider who we are and who we're becoming, who God wants us to be. That we would measure our life by what God is doing rather than by our agenda. Unto Him be glory in the church, in our lives, and in Christ Jesus. This, this is the mountaintop perspective that ought to give us spiritual eyes to see God's purpose and plan for us. Now, it, it, it's fascinating, and as I've thought personally about this and, and meditating upon this and seeing God's working in my life and to realize this, you know, Facebook reminded me the other day that it was, it was three years ago this Sunday that this local assembly voted to call me as pastor. And we had prayed, we want God's will. We were having church prayer meetings with that in mind. And, and, and that was my prayer, my wife's prayer, our family's prayer. And as I thought about that, and even through that process, to think back that I, I came to be the, the president of the college. When we came, even as we were leaving Maine, my wife said, it seems like God has more than that. Well, when our daughter got sick, and I shared that with you last week, I thought, okay, yeah, that's it. God positioned us here so that we had a hospital that we could get to in the winter. If I'd had to do that in Maine, it, it would have been a very difficult situation. And I thought, wow, look at what God's done. And God said, no, I got more in mind. He did exceeding abundantly. 
And folks, this is Christ's church. I, I love serving here, but it's not my church. I, I just get to be part of what he's doing. And it is God's glory that has to be exalted. And we must keep that in mind as we strive to protect the unity of our body, as we seek to proclaim the goodness of God, and that in everything he would have first place, as we read in Colossians 1.18, and that when we come to him, we come with large petitions. And when you comprehend the majesty of God's plan for your salvation, you will endeavor to live for his glory in your everyday life. Is there a sin you can't get victory? Ask. Bring a large petition. Ask in his will. Part of the stretching may be to help you understand and submit to his will. But none of us can ever ask too much where he says, yeah, I can't cover that. His checkbook can cover it. It can cover your forgiveness because it's out of his riches. He gives you the power, it's out of his riches. His kindness is out of his riches. And if you're here today and have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. God looked down through history and saw you here today, sitting here or watching by live stream. Would you trust him even this morning? Let's pray together.